So I'm really excited to transition us to a conversation about abolition, transformative justice, what is the liberatory vision for education and youth justice in Mississippi today. Really excited for that and also excited to talk about what philanthropy must do now to support this vision. And I'm really excited for this next set of conversations. We are going to hear from Jonathan Stiff of Alliance for Educational Justice. Natalie Collier from Black Girls Lighthouse Project, Rukia Lamumba from People's Advocacy Institute, and Albert Sykes from IDEA. And actually, let me kick it over to you, Allison, to get us started with this uh, first question. Sure. Thank you, Thena. So, Jonathan, what does it mean to fight for abolition, police-free schools, transformative justice in Mississippi as, as part of abolition? What does that mean? And then what are some of the national implications of the fight that you have seen that started there in Mississippi? And how has it really influenced your work? Absolutely. Um, I was just uh, taking so many notes as uh, you and uh, Brenda and Rachel and uh, Ellen, uh, Miss Ellen, I shouldn't be calling (laughs) by y'all first names, apologies, just around the impact of the work. And as if we could understand through the stories and through the issues that we heard in Mississippi, a lot of the ground around the national campaign for police-free schools and now what is this movement moment and now a moment a movement around police-free schools really has uh, connections in Mississippi. Again, some of what we heard, just again, understanding the role of state-supported violence against Black youth, their dehumanization, right? If we can understand assault ads, which is when a, a school police resource officer violently assaults a Black youth or a youth of color, as a modern form of lynching, just kind of extrajudicial school discipline, uh, then we can understand some of what we heard around uh, Mississippi, the idea around statutory crimes, kind of crimes that wouldn't be a crime if you weren't a young person, and double crime uh, because you're a Black youth, right? So, and what we've seen with the assaults across the country, which has been some of the genesis for uh, a lot of our work um, being present, right? And even the connection between prisons and young people and the presence of, of law enforcement. I think I was most most concrete around the story of Meridian, where you had the, the police officers saying like this was a policy and a very clear relationship between the school district and the police. And while they probably had a great MOU on paper, what the real MOU was, was one of racial oppression. And so I think it's easy for us sometimes, for those of us who um, are outside of Mississippi, not to understand that uh, what we think about Mississippi is everywhere, right? And that uh, Malcolm had a quote saying like everything below Canada and, and our uh, some of our comrades in Toronto would say, well, we include Toronto too, is Mississippi, is the South. And so understanding then policing as a form of corporal punishment begins to 
connect us to the issue. For us in the Alliance, part of our, again, journey um, around police-free schools and calling for it, a lot of us were in Ferguson. Prior to that, we had organized 300 young people to come to Mississippi for Freedom Summer, which laid the groundwork for a lot of the national organizing that was to take place after Ferguson that uh, led to then groups across the country being to beginning to look at uh, policing uh, in schools, particularly the 1033 program uh, with uh, the victory and organizing of the uh, Strategy Center in Los Angeles and those young people there getting the LA Police Department to return to military grade weapons. For us, uh, when we got involved with the assault at Spring Valley and the defense of Nia Kenny and Shakara, uh, part of our work was then coming to Jackson, Mississippi in 2016 for the UN Working Group on People of African Descent, right? And having Nia and young people from New Orleans and across the country testify to the issue of policing in their schools, leading to a set of conclusions and a call for the removal of police from schools by the UN, uh, which again was setting the stage. And so what we saw kind of after the Minneapolis decision, again, triggered by state violence uh, outside the school, we've always been clear that there's a connection between the policing that happens in our communities and the police in our schools, that they are the same police officer, they're the same cops. And so what we then saw was then a proliferation of, of school districts all across the country began to really question their relationship to policing. But then there was also sets of organizations across the country, about 20 organizations that have formed the National Campaign for Police Free Schools that have been organizing to really try to win police-free schools with this idea that if we win it one place, we can win it all places. And for us, the definition around police-free schools is really about dismantling policing infrastructure, culture, and practice, which again was a central line through what we heard around the story in Mississippi and many folks in their school districts can relate and also a liberatory vision of what is to come. And so part of what we understand abolition to be is us trying to end a system of exploitation, which is the education justice system, ending state-sponsored violence against Black youth and really all oppressed youth and all youth, and really setting the stage for a new kind of education in this country that reflects uh, the dignity the safety and the belonging of Black youth and is rooted in our history of struggle that, again, sees young people as leaders today uh, and not problems to be solved, fixed, or arrested. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for that. Powerful. So powerful. We're going to go now to Natalie Collier with Lighthouse, Black Girls Lighthouse Project. And Natalie, if you could talk a little bit about the work that your organization does and reflect on the question of As we think about creating safe and nurturing spaces for Black girls in Mississippi, that's in in their schools and their communities, what are young people dreaming up about what's possible? What are you hearing from the young people that you work with? To answer relatively quickly about the work that we do, I tell people that uh, we do leadership development work. And I have been challenged a few times about not calling what we do leadership development work because it is more substantive and has a bit more, um, according to the people who have challenged me, has more um, depth and breadth to it than leadership development work. 
uniquely with young people. My challenge to them, though, then is that um, maybe we should uh, redefine what leadership development work looks like. That if leadership development work, any leadership development work that we are doing does not have breadth and depth and substance, then probably we're just, you know, like teaching etiquette classes or something. So we work right now mostly with high school and college aged people up to uh, like late 20s in different stages of their life. And what does it mean um, to find your um, place your power and where you are right now. And so that's a lot of what leadership development means for us. I could do a whole lot more talking about that, but I want to answer the question about safety. And so that I did not spend a lot of time rambling because I can do that to get to a point, I made sure to jot down my answer. When I spend some time thinking about that, one, one of the things that I want to offer up first is that I think the question puts an onus on children and young people that they don't deserve. I think that the question, the consideration is noble and valuable, but it ultimately can be an unkind question. And at worst, uh, it's it's abusive. So I am in no way suggesting that young people's ideas um, and children's ideas and input aren't important because they are. And not to have input from them would be a replication of the harmful and violent and ubiquitous systems that um, all of us are fighting against. What I am suggesting, however, is that any offering by children and young people that we are ill prepared to at minimum hear out and help them explore and consider how their ideas might be or maybe not be possible at the moment is an us thing and not a them thing. And this is about investment in people, children and young folks, particularly uh, with whom we should be engaging, not just pouring into, as some folks like to say, which I offer is itself a bit patriarchal. Children's imaginations are inherently safe spaces, free of harm and violence when they are at their most innocent. This is the case even for the college students that we work with. What we find, however, is that children just as well, um, just as we all have been, are steeped in the piping hot waters of, again, like we all have been, white dominance. And uh, we acclimate and adjust accordingly. Imaginations, therefore, move around obstacles, for example, police and school, And where we are often looking to hear solutions to problems that we know exist, we rest our laurels on pegs like children's ideas, um, and we check off boxes for youth representation, though we sometimes know that we might not be in right relationship, and we lose sight of the fact that we are starting children and young people from a disempowered position engaging them in conversations about systems and not problems. So staying with the example of cops in schools, do we want, let's say, school resource officers out of classrooms? Absolutely, we do. But 
Those officers are just symptoms of a greater issue, which is our acclimation to operating in white patriarchal supremacist systems. Also, we could just cancel the contracts and, you know, get the people out of there. This is where, though, if we're not careful, we're engaging our children in futile exercises that unwittingly, albeit, can lead to abuse. Yeah. I was trying to make sure I wasn't being dramatic when I said that. Operating as though any solution, imagination, our children can conjure will ever have any impact without our own investment in a cycle that looks like rigorous imagination of and consistent challenging of our own internalized oppression, disruptive responses to the status quo. And um, again, back to radical imagination, we're wasting um, children's time in our own. Imagination without power and authority is just child's play. And if that's all we're interested in from them, we should let them be. Because as studies have shown, adultification, particularly of Black girls, happens before we know it anyway. So back to the question. Universally, what does safety look like for girls? It's an obstacle they not ever have to consider. But if I am honest, there ain't no safe space for a Black girl. And so my duty is to create moments of respite and happiness spaces for them to be angry without repercussion, spaces for sadness to linger, for their sadness to linger, if that's what they need, Um, just to create spaces for small reminders of their humanity. And then other folks' duty is to work to dismantle the systems that oppose that and those girls. And we know what works. We just have to have the practice, the daily courageous practice of doing the things that we know to work. Thank you so much, Natalie. I really wish you could keep going. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. So many jewels. I could. (laughs) Yes. We're going to have to have a follow-up to this for sure. For sure. Allison, I'm going to turn it over to you for our next uh, question and introduction. Um, Yes. Thank you again, Natalie. That was, that was incredible. So, Rukia, with the historical context that we've heard today so far, what would you say are the the possibilities right now and in the future for abolition, reimagining, and freedom dreaming, a liberatory vision for education, especially as we reflect on the, the people power of Mississippi? So many of my amazing comrades on this Uh, Zoom, so thankful for the opportunity to join you all. Really appreciate the historical context and the work of our elders who are on here who've been doing this and guiding us for many, many years around this area. So just want to say that and uh, really appreciate, really appreciate you all and for shining a light on Mississippi and and what is needed here. So yes, I'm Rukia Lumumba with the People's Advocacy Institute here in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm also with the Electoral Justice Project of the Movement for Black Lives and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. And for years, for decades, we have really fought to um, remove police from schools. And so when you ask the question, what do I think is a reality? What can happen now? I think that, yes, that we can see police out of schools. I think that is something that is 
very real. I think that is something that is not as difficult as it seems. As Natalie said, it's about literally ending some contracts. (laughs) It's all right. And there are many ways to end a contract or to shift contracts or to make things different. Um, And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I also think that there is a great opportunity right now for um, the realization of what I term or in what our movement terms community-led governance and specifically community-led governance as it relates to our young people. And so an opportunity for our young people to begin to chart the course for what their education needs to look like and the treatment and their treatment needs to be. So similar to what Natalie talked about is really beginning to shift this paradigm, this this power um, wheeling and controlling away from simply putting into our young people, but beginning to shift that power dynamic and allowing them to guide and develop the own process for their education, as well as for the accountability that comes with um, learning behaviors and learning new behaviors and being in community and relationship with one another and with adults. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity here. I think that we see that opportunity right now in a really beautiful way through the organizing of our young people around the violence, police violence in our streets, in our communities, young people taking the streets and leading us. And and let me be clear. I think that honestly, young people have always been the guiders of every revolution and all change here. You know, young people have literally always led revolutions across the world. We know that here in the U.S., when we look at the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, we know that hundreds of young people, right, led that movement, led that movement. Hundreds of young people um, literally subjected their bodies to pain and torture, to being jailed. Um, We talk about the story of Hollis Watkins, right, and how Hollis talks about when he was a teenager, 15 years old, and he was put into a prison um, or jail here um, in Mississippi and was placed on death row and hadn't even been indicted on any charges, right? And we talk about that and and all of the hundreds of children that were put over there in the Mississippi, uh, what do you call it, over at the fairgrounds and put in pens with animals, right? That they were keeping animals in. You know, these are are our, our grandparents that we're talking about, many of us. These are our aunts and our uncles that are still alive today to tell those stories. But they were young. They were brave. They were leading and charged with leading our movement towards change. And today we see the same thing. We see many people, many of our young people being arrested. And also we see something else continuing. We see the combination and respect and understanding of our young people to work with our elders, right? Because at this point, they are the two generations of our people who have the, to some extent, the most to uh, value, but also they are also at a point in their lives where many of them, as some people like to say, and it may not be politically correct, I don't know, but they have the least to lose, right? Um, Us in our middle ages, we got children, right? We have children that we have to still take care of. So we, we tend to be more reserved. But folks on the younger end of the spectrums and folks on the older end of the spectrum are at a place in their lives where they're like, listen, I can risk it all right now, right? And so oftentimes they do. So today, as I'm sitting here listening to all of this brilliance and, and all of this guidance. I just got a text from, from some of our comrades out in Petal, Mississippi, who have been protesting in Petal for the past month, 
around the injustices that are happening there around police violence and state-sanctioned violence, because it's not just police violence, right? We know that when the sheriff department refuses to acknowledge that a child that just got lynched was actually lynched and then says, says it's a suicide, that we know that that's state violence. We know that that's, that's a whole lot of violence, right? It's not just police violence. Um, and yeah, the sheriff's department is a police officer, but the sheriff is also elected. So we also have to realize our right and our privilege to elect people in and out and what that power holds and, and has. So anyway, you know, an elder in Petal, Mississippi, 70 years old, just got pulled and dragged from protesting by police around uh, moving that. And it's young people that started these protests, right? And are still out here. So there's a lot of opportunity. We see opportunity in the fact that we're beginning to move legislators towards um, common sense legislation. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw legislators pass critical bills that would have improved our education system, improved our water infrastructure system, and um, improved our criminal um, system here in Mississippi. But we have a governor that vetoed that. And so our work has to continue. Our work, though we have a lot of opportunity and we see the state moving towards a more progressive agenda, we also recognize that at every turn that we have progress, there will be somebody that tries to hinder or prevent us from moving even a step closer. And so as collective, what I know and what I see in the movement of the people across this state collectively is that we have collective strength. We have collective voice. And I see it moving. We are moving. We are louder than we've been in decades. And we are moving collectively and together. And we, I, it, it is something beautiful. It is something that I can see only growing. And I see a new day here in Mississippi. And I absolutely see a new day for our children. And so I am I'm looking forward to many of the folks on this call um, leading the way so that we can follow around literally getting cops out of our schools, right? I think a lot of it is about how do we educate school boards around what it is to get cops out of school. I think it is really important that we also began to have real political education and community forums with our members. And I'll be quiet because I know time is running out. So I appreciate y'all. Thank you so very much, Rukia. We are going to invite you, Albert, your voice into the conversation, Albert Sykes. I was about to say Albert Sparks, but that's because you are sparking so much brilliance over there. So Albert, You've shared with us before that when we reflect on Mississippi's history, political power, and leadership on issues of education and the fight for justice, we sometimes operate off a narrative of redactions. I heard you say that and was just like, okay, that's mind-blowing. What does that mean? And so if you can unpack a little bit for us, first, tell us who you are, tell us what you do, and what is often left out of the story when we talk about the fight for education and youth justice in Mississippi? So my name is Albert Sykes. I serve as the executive director of the Institute for Democratic Education in America. For short, we call ourselves IDEA. I'm a student of Bob Moses and the Algebra Project. Been in Mississippi all of my life and grew up in the community where Meg Evers was assassinated. So his story is the foundation of uh, me really believing in what can happen in Mississippi and understanding uh Sometimes the things that are necessary for us to bring about change in our state and in our communities. When I talked about um, this notion of us operating off of a history of redactions, I always try to draw people's attention to what Jackson, Mississippi looks like. 
So we bring people to Mississippi. Mississippi has the most black elected officials in the country, the largest black population in the country, and Jackson is the blackest city in the country. One of the biggest issues that we talk about every election season is infrastructure. And it comes down to water and potholes. And people would always talk about the pipes under the streets in the city of Jackson being 100 years old on average. And so what I try to remind people is we got our first black mayor in 1997 and this 2020. So if we're looking at pipes that's 100 years old, and we measuring what has failed our city, then what we overlooking is white neglect and the failure of white leadership in the history of a city like Jackson and a state like Mississippi, which doesn't allow us to take in the whole story of what has happened historically and traditionally cities that's uh, largely populated with Black folks. So we we'll say that the pipe's 100 years old. We had 23 years worth of Black leadership. Who should have fixed all of those other 77 years of white neglect? While also not acknowledging that no matter how much Black leadership we elect, changing the face of representation does not change the foundational structure of the system itself. So when you're talking about a place like Mississippi and electing the most Black elected officials in the country, then you also uh, have to talk about them being elected into a system that was never structured to absorb black leadership. So the same things that uh, a lot of white legislators walk in knowing how to use different loopholes and knowing, knowing how to curtail different rules, we are in positions where you have to have mechanisms like the Mississippi Black Leadership Institute, which is educating and teaching and coaching incoming and long-term Black politicians who walked into a system. And I think the, the thing that's so easy for us to get duped by is, uh, Natalie said earlier, imagination without power or authority is child's play. And so if you start doing that to a, a race of people at such a young age, from elementary school, pre-K, and all the way up, well, when we get elected, we have these big ideas, we have these big promises, we have these big dreams, but what we don't have is actual power and authority that's respected and that's supported and that's built into the way that the system of governance of the state of Mississippi operates. Another thing that we have to look at, too, is that Mississippi is the only state in the union that has elections every year. So part of the intentionality behind that is to induce voter fatigue on top of all the roadblocks, being able to vote without an ID, being able to vote within 50 miles of where you live in places like Alabama, where they shut down DMVs and they move polling places far enough away from black communities that they add more and more layers of struggle on us being able to even engage politically, but just getting to the polls and hyping everybody up to vote and keeping everybody with the energy to vote is not enough if we're not really educating people on what this system is and the limitation that it causes on our leadership. And that we able to put people in place who are able to examine this and do something about it. Another part of what happens is that we don't tell the story about what the fear of black bodies by white people does to cities like Jackson. So you go back and look at our public school district in the years of 77 and 78, all the way up to 1980. But like between 77 and 79, 
you had high, 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 high levels of white flight from the city of Jackson's public schools because for the first time since all these civil rights laws were passed in the 60s, we started getting ready to transition into the 80s. Public schools were about to make their first try. I won't even call it an honest attempt. They were make, about to make a first soft try at this idea of integration. And white people showed that they would rather have segregationist academies, that their churches would rather start schools, that they would rather start private schools than to share spaces with black people. And so when white people left this city, they also took with them a lot of the tax base. They also dwindled the numbers of home ownership, which uh, with Mississippi being a state uh, with Jackson Public Schools Operating off ad valorem taxes, the more people that leave, the less property taxes they get paid, the less ways we able to supplement our schools when we move into a pandemic where you already got a cash-strapped district or underfunded district and you got a state that's committed to keeping it that way. Then our work is from the ground all the way to the top floor of the state capitol. Like, it's not a door that we can't afford to not knock on. It's not an ear that we can't afford to make noise in. Because if we don't, then we know that it's not going to be some magical day that white Mississippi is going to wake up and care about black Mississippi, which is another one of the redacted narratives that we got to get in front of right now and that we got to hold the line on in the future, which is around this Confederate flag, where now it seems like we had this bunch of sympathetic, empathetic, loving white men and women who were willing to cross the aisle and do something that was so tough for them to do all of these years. And like that is not the true narrative of what happened with that state flag. It was young people who were putting the pressure on the state government in the wake of what happened with George Floyd. That's recent. Uh, and then there was folks going all the way back to Aaron Henry and so many other folks across Mississippi history who fought that flag for a long time, who did many, many things to bring lawsuits against the state around uh, that flag being a representation of who we are as people. And then what we end up with is the story of these courageous white men who did something because they all of a sudden woke up with a swell of love and care for black communities and black children in the state of Mississippi. Allison talked earlier about this sixth to 12th grade years where by state law, students can be labeled habitual offenders, which means if they get in trouble two times in one calendar school year, they label a habitual offender, not just for their sixth grade year, but all the way through their 12th grade year, which in turn is their in-school felony. So it's not just a school to prison pipeline, it's a school as a prison breeding ground where we say we give you this felony that carries all the way through your educational career. So a mistake you made in the sixth grade takes off any chance that you should have any credibility, any benefit of doubt in the 10th, 11th, 12th grade and whatever else. And then that's also tied into this thing that Natalie talked about with the adultification of children, where Harry Belafonte started the gathering for justice on the heels of that young woman, that young girl in Florida, five years old, getting arrested as a kindergarten child, led out of her school, being dragged while she's screaming and crying by police officers. And then just as recent as early this year, we had another young child in Florida, about the same age, five or six years old. She gets committed to the mental ward arrested at school, committed to the mental ward, before they even contacted her parents, they adultify our children. And they think that our children can handle the same stresses and pressures that 
they not even good with juggling with every day. And the way that we look at our children and we talk about police-free schools, well, part of what we got to talk about is how early our kids are being looked at as potential criminals, how uh, early our children are being looked at as absolute criminals. This starts way before they make it to middle school. When you're talking about young girls being arrested in kindergarten, you're talking about kids that's now going to jail for throwing a pencil across the classroom when that used to be something that school leadership could handle. When we're looking at these conversations about what's happening with COVID and the implications of homeschooling and what we having to readjust to around education and the fact that we got 13 or 14 whole counties in Mississippi that don't have access to broadband internet, while Mississippi is also the number one recipient of universal services funds from the FCC, which are supposed to be designed to build our broadband in rural areas across the country. We get the most money and we do the least improvement in the most impacted areas of the state. And so even if every child in this state had a computer right now and was able to be homeschooled right now just by having a computer, then they also don't have what it takes to be able to um, use that computer to actually be educated. No broadband, no access, right? And so we got to really be able to follow the money, hold the people accountable, make sure that the story is being told fair, and make sure that we're shining the light on what Mississippi is. Mississippi is pro-free or cheap labor controlled by a bad school system, controlled by overpopulating prisons, where the Corrections Corporation of America is, one, you have to guarantee 90% occupancy of any jail that they uh, manage in your state. And then also we have 1.4 million prisoners who work for corporations and 600,000 of those work manufacturing jobs, which are the same jobs that people try to use a narrative to draw a black-brown divide where they say, Immigrants coming to take your job. Immigrants coming to in pursuit of the same freedom that we've been sold that we hadn't been able to access. ICE didn't exist before 2003. Mississippi just had the largest workplace ICE rate in the history of this country last year. And that was just a drop of what they could have done if they wanted to do more. But Mississippi was a showing ground to show that if this country wanted to move in mass to cause problems, in the immigrant community, if this country wanted to move in mass to further oppress Black people, that we have a government that has all the mechanisms to make those things happen unless we the people, which are the first three words in the Constitution, are the people who are the ones who decide who are we the people, what are the rights and freedoms guaranteed to we the people, and whether we allow the definition of who we the people is to expand or the contract. And right now, we're in a time in our nation's history where we're going to decide whether we're going to live in a more inclusive country or whether we're going to let this thing retract and we're going to live in a more restrictive country. And the last thing um, that I say is that we have to get comfortable leaning into the wisdom and the experience and the imaginations of our young people. Man, stop thinking about movement as a place where we have to make space for young people. All people born with an innate space that they rightfully deserve to occupy in this world and that they rightfully able to have ownership over in this world. So we don't have to create space for young people. We have to respect the spaces that they naturally born into and to be able to feed into that leadership in a way that we're not uncomfortable getting out of their way when we see that they have what it takes that can take our things to the next level. Because no matter how many victims 
victories we get, if we're not training people to protect our victories, then they victories that eventually become null and void. You get the Voting Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, and we can feel good about that until we get a, a conservative Supreme Court that says, yes, we're going to take one sentence out of this whole act, which in turn gives it no teeth, no real grounds for enforcement, strips away all of this power that this perceived power, political power that people thought they had for over 50 years. And part of that is because when we get victories, we also have to train and bring up people that carry up the rear of protecting the things that we've been able to ensure and usher for our communities. And that we have to uh, really move from this male-dominated space when we talk about change and when we talk about leadership and when we talk about improvement and really understand that nobody is saying Black Lives Matter if it weren't for three Black women, right? Nobody is saying anything about George Floyd if it ain't for Black Lives Matter and the work that they started. But then the Me Too movement becomes this thing where we talk about the courageousness of white women coming out sharing the things that they happened while we redacting and erasing the fact that it was a black woman who talked about her experiences with this for so long for all of that time before it became something that came out of the mouth of a white celebrity a white female celebrity which then in turn uh, mutes and nulls and boys the experiences that this black woman has been sharing and building up for so long so how are we holding spaces to really think about the mothers of Darian Albert, the mother of Trayvon Martin, the mothers of Jackson, Mississippi, or Flint, Michigan, Dave, when you look around this country and you ask who's really bearing the brunt of all that is pushed down on our communities, the most of it goes to our mothers. And we have a lot of responsible men in our communities who also bearing that brunt. But when they start snatching us up and throwing us away, and when they locking us up and they killing us, what they leaving behind is a community of mothers who have to pull together and find a way. And that's what we always been relegated to in this country is the people that have to find a way. But now we transition and then we forcing this country to not make us be people that find a way, that make this country be a country that makes a way. Because we no longer living under the imagination that emancipation is something that's given to us by Abraham Lincoln or anybody else. Emancipation from this point on for black people has to be something that we win from the demand side. And lastly, that we understand that just like we have a, a state that is anti-black, it's also anti-freedom. So we have to turn Mississippi into a pro-love, pro-all, pro-prosperous state where each of us can live in that Mecca that Mega Evers dreamed of when he said that Jackson and Mississippi will one day be a paradise that everybody would want to live in. And so rest in peace to John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, two of our warriors who transition uh, and whose shoulders we stand on. And um, thank you all for letting us be here today. Every time that you speak, I swear, I learn something new and I'm just energized. Thank you so much for that. So we're going to go quickly to Tamika Mosley, who is the director of Grantmakers for Southern Progress. She's going to give us a couple minutes of her thoughts about philanthropy and what philanthropy has to do and know about Mississippi and the South right in this moment. First of all, thank you all for all of the contributions that you've made on this call. If you didn't know before this call, you know now that the expertise to get Mississippi where it needs to be around education is here. Folks have the capacity. They have the know-how. 
They have the understanding of their community, the understanding to their people, the connections to their people. Now it's time for philanthropy to do its part and that support them and create the lines of infrastructure that they need to do their work, not only enough, but do it exceptionally well. I know without doubt, I don't even have to ask for permission. I know that every organizer that you heard from today has made miracles happen on very little resource. What would happen if philanthropy fully funded them to do their work in a very real way? What changes could we see in the state of Mississippi and across the South if we fully invested in the radical imagination of the people that have been doing this work and has passed this work on from generation to generation to generation? So I'm wrapping this up. I had a whole presentation I'm not going to do. But what I am going to do is send a charge out to each of you to be organizers and influencers within your institutions and within your networks to fund this work and to fund the work well. And there are things that you can do to do that. One, look at your your grant-making processes and policies and make sure they're not being oppressive to those that need the most support to get this work done. Take risk. Invest more. What you're investing now, triple it so that the work can be done in a way that it's going to destroy the school-to-prison pipeline and so that children have the opportunity to create, dream, and imagine what their futures can be. I also believe that you all need to join together. Join us all. Let, don't let this be the first or last time that you all engage. Make sure you're having conversations with folks and organizers that are working on the ground so you are clear on how your strategies need to be created to support the work that's really going to be meaningful in the state of Mississippi and across the South. You have to have the conversations. Your, your strategies, if you create them in silos, will not create the outcomes that are going to be beneficial to the children that you are trying to support and build the opportunity for. These are clear actions that you can do right now. Engage with folks directly in their community. I know the pandemic is here, but that's okay. Have one-on-one conversations. Engage the folks that were on this call today to learn more about what, what they're doing. I will say in the time that we've been on this call, they've taken us from a historical context. We've learned about the policies and the legislations that have tripped up folks in community. We've heard about the organizing infrastructure that has been in place now for over 50, 60 years, if not longer. Ms. Reddy, you can check me on that. We also heard about how we can create strategies and opportunities for investment in young people so that they can have their own space and have ownership in their space to dream and push this community in a different way. Guys, you know what to do. We just have to get it done. The South, in terms of philanthropic dollars, gets a very small, less than 4%. We have to triple that number, if not quadruple that number, so that the folks, again, on the ground could have the work and create the opportunity to have power and build power on the ground so that we could start seeing the Mississippi that folks have been imagining for centuries. My name is Tamika Mosley. I'm a grant maker for Southern Progress. I invite you to take action. I invite you to join all of those that have been on this call in the fight for our children and their future. 
So you have your marching orders, you have the history, you have the, the what's possible in this moment and in the future. We look forward to seeing what you all do, everyone who has joined us. We are so grateful. Everyone join me in, in thanking our... Of several conversations we'll be having virtually about Mississippi, since we can't be there in person, we'll be doing several virtual conversations about Mississippi and about the education justice work and the intersection between education justice and youth justice. So thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful evening. Many times I sit back and contemplate, fresh off the thing, but I'm telling my story. Oh man.